at everybody. All right, you ready to study God's Word? Come on, we've been talking about how to love our neighbor. Everyone say together, I love my neighbor. Ready? I. One more time. Come on now, get it in your, get it in your heart. Get it in your spirit. We started our series talking about who our neighbor actually was. And you may remember how we defined it. We used the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan in that story helped us define our neighbor. Our neighbor is the one who has a legitimate and immediate need that only you could meet or only I could meet if I'm the one walking along the road. Compassion, Jesus taught compassion not through an organization. He taught compassion through people. I'm just saying it because I noticed it this morning. There was a big article in the New York Times that was quoting Jesus. When, when, when the New York Times is quoting Scripture, you know that's close to revival. The New York Times is somewhere left of Karl Marx. And they're quoting Jesus, but they're quoting Jesus in a cherry-picking way, I call it, because they're quoting all the compassion verses that Jesus mentioned, but they're wanting to apply it to government. And so they're spoofing uh, our Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. And again, whether you're a, a Republican or a Paul Ryan fan, it, it doesn't matter to me one bit. Uh, I'm not fans of all these guys either. But, I'm, but they're spoofing him trying to somehow embarrass him that he was undermining the New York Times, think about this, is quoting Jesus and that Paul Ryan is undermining Jesus' commands because of how he wants to implement health care in our nation. Now, I don't have time, and those of you that have been around me and I've taught on Reformation before, I can't open this whole can up again, except to say this, that Jesus didn't come for government to implement compassion compassion now there may be safety nets and there may be a great civic discussion that we can have on safety nets and all these things may have their place and i'm not a this cold-hearted guy who doesn't think that there can't be safety nets in in civic in, in in civic society or government i'm not i'm not saying what i am saying is this is that when jesus was teaching compassionate verses he wasn't teaching what we should do by way of taxes and and national health care he was teaching you and me personally what we should be doing when we come across a legitimate and immediate need that's an amen part right there amen and 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 i'm just telling you i have all sorts of things spinning in my brain at this moment that aren't on my notes do you, know, do you know why, do you know why, I think the church would be willing as a whole to pick up compassion again, but you know why really the world doesn't want the church to pick up compassion? It's because the church will make people accountable. Because we will not fund your rebellion. So if you're going to go out and, and rebel, for instance, if you're just going to put drugs in your system, and I'm talking about illegal drugs, if you're going to snort cocaine and do your heroin and, and you're going to lose all your, you know, you're going to, you're going to be an alcoholic and you're going to just your whole life's going to be dysfunctional. Well, no, a part a part of your training is understanding that the way of the transgressor is hard. That's what the Bible says. This is this isn't rocket science. But God says this to us. He says, if you sin, life will be hard. That's Bible. If you follow me, it won't. It's not that there won't be hard times, but the Lord says, I will walk with you and see you through. And there can even be. 
a, a social structure or there can be a type of safety net around you that isn't called the federal government, but it's called my local body. And there we'll find help, but you'll find accountability. You see, we're not here just to dole out goodies. We're here to help people fish and to be self, self-sufficient under God. So our neighbor is the one who has a legitimate and immediate need. And the question we left you with is, are you being personally compassionate? I've been personally compassionate. I have given, I've given monies to people that are standing on corners when I felt the moving of the Holy Spirit to do that. Sometimes I feel like they were scamming, and so I didn't, I didn't do anything, but I have given money. I've given money personally. I've paid people's meals. I've, I've, I've paid behind me. I've picked up coffees. I've done things anonymously, and, and hopefully you have too. And these are the things Jesus says that we are to do. This is a part of our life is we see our neighbor. I've mowed my neighbor's lawns. I've clipped their trees. I've done all kinds of things. And we don't run it up the flagpole and say, see what I've done. You just do your faith. I've, you know, we've cooked meals for people in the neighborhood that didn't go to church. We, we cooked it out of compassion. So hear me. I'm not saying we're not compassionate. I'm simply saying that our compassion has to be defined appropriately, which is what last week we started to talk about when we talked about how love does not equal enablement. You know, we can be compassionate. If people are blowing all their money at the racetrack, let's say, and we keep paying their electric bill, are we helping them or enabling them? Right. Because they'll never get it until they don't have any money to pay their electric bill. And so then they can go bet on the horses, let's say, but they're going to do it living in the dark or without air conditioning. So, Last week, we talked about enablement, and we opened the can to what an enabler looks like uh, when they think that they're helping, but they're really enabling. They think that they're being loving, but in fact, they are sharing, the Bible says, in their sin. Now, I was only able to give you like five of the ten characteristics of an enabler last week. You remember that? Only got to five. And I want to introduce our material today, and I've got some new material I'm going to give you in the lesson today. But I know some of us, and I'm this way, I am incredibly OCD, that if I don't get all 10 points, then I feel like I'm incomplete. You know, I'm the guy that if you hand me out a fill-in-the-blank and the speaker doesn't get to all the blanks, I'll chase him down after the service and I'll say, what goes in this blank? Because I'm OCD. Maybe you're not like that. You could care less. But for me, I feel incomplete if I don't give you 6 through 10. So I'm going to give you 6 through 10. I'm not going to spend as much time talking about it. But this way, you can at least write them down if you want the 10. And if you didn't get last week, you can go to YouTube and listen to the first five that we said last week. All right, so, so on the screen overhead, it's actually going to start with number 6. Number 6 of 10 characteristics of enablers and number six is that an enabler needs to be needed or in other words they want to be relevant needs to be needed or they want to be relevant enablers love to be needed enablers in turn they're good people but they want to fix things they want to be the hero they want to save the day they want sometimes even to be depended upon to rescue the enabled now we do this in church life by wanting to be relevant. We want people to lean on us rather than connect to the Lord. 
here's the deal. This is really, I think, as I'm analyzing this, some of our challenges in 21st century American Christianity. We want people to come to church, to need the church, but the church can't do anything really for them substantively because the church is a human organization. We must lead them to the Lord and the Lord is able to do whatever is necessary, needful, and miraculous in their life. We do not manage their problems. We lead them to the Lord who can finally resolve their problems. That's why we preach repentance. Because it's not repentance to me. It's not repentance to the church. It's repentance unto him. And when that's right and that pipeline is opened then the Lord can begin to work in that person's life. But an enabler tends to be the one who needs to be needed when we should be pointing him to the one who meets the needs. And you understand what I'm doing this, I'm pointing to the Lord, right? Okay. Number seven, an enabler tends to minimize dysfunction or they minimize the sin. Enablers minimize the problems that they are enabling. What's really not that bad they really don't mean it. I mean, other people are doing worse. Again, you see enablement take place in family trees. We used a lot of those illustrations last Sunday. But as a church, I think we've enabled people in sin. We've minimized it. We've minimized the seriousness of brokenness. We were talking about this recently, my wife and I, and, and it's interesting why we're having such a challenge in the church today, being able to address a generation. I was reading another magazine article that says that the percentages of young kids, we're talking junior high and high school, who are now thinking that they are homosexual has increased exponentially from years past. Now, there's only two answers to that. Either number one is, is that they're being sown this stuff, or number two is there was this massive repression that was taking place. Well, for me, it's not the repression that's taking place. For me, it's, it's something's being sowed through media, education, and other venues that's seeding ideas in kids that are growing up who are already working through their sexuality, who are probably already confused in numerous ways, and they're beginning to, to see that this is beginning to happen. Well, now that it's beginning to happen, we as the church are finding more and more people who are either uh, confused or they have uh, perhaps children, siblings, friends, good friends who are in this particular lifestyle and, and we're finding it difficult to talk to it. Why? It's because we've spent years minimizing heterosexual sin. We've minimized the fact that there are deacons and there are choir members and there are people who are sleeping around and fornicating and doing everything God's word forbids heterosexually, but we let it go. And so now all of a sudden we're incensed when we see it in a homosexual way and we've lost our credibility to talk to it because we weren't speaking to anything else that was happening at the time it was happening. And so what we've done is we've minimized it all. And we've just said, well, everybody sins. You know, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if everybody sins, then everybody sins the same and it really doesn't matter because we're all going to sin anyway. So we just end up sinning. And then we enable it. Jesus didn't come to die so you could be enabled in your sin. The scripture says that he came that you might be set free. There's a victory and a liberty that we should have. And I, I want liberty. I don't want sin to beset me. I don't want my destiny to be stolen or detoured. 
I want to be able to be free. But enablers tend to minimize the dysfunction. Number eight, they even share in the dysfunction. Um, Enablers will tend to help the enabled person evade their personal responsibility or their consequences. They literally share in the sin. I talked about this last week. That when we, when we help an enabled person to the place that they are evading their responsibility, we're stepping on lines that are beginning to share in the sin. We must not do that. Number nine, enablers tend to fear the dysfunctional or they fear the enabled. Enablers tend to fear the enabled individual. They fear upsetting them. Have you ever been around somebody where you said to yourself, we can't get them upset? If you get them upset, the whole place is just drama. And there's this fear. We got to do everything to keep them from being upset or there'll be this drama. Listen, the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And so the enabled person has likely learned that they're able to control situations and people so they can evade confession. They can evade their consequences because they get angry or they get into fits of rage They bully, they cry, there's self-pity, there's threats of self-harm. And again, if people are threatening suicide, I understand that has to be taken seriously. But there are times I'm well aware of the fact people threaten suicide and they're doing it to control everyone around them. You got to be careful. We don't enable. Then lastly, number 10, and I know I had to do this quickly, and you can listen to last week and catch up. But a characteristic of an enabler is misplaced trust. Enablers tend to give far too much credibility and trust to the enabled person. Now, how does this work in church life? Let me just share this. The Bible says that things ought not be given to people too soon or to a novice. In fact, the Bible talks about this with regards to leadership, that leadership ought not be given to novices. Why is that? Because you want some credibility built up. You want someone to have some faithfulness under their belt. You want someone to have a track record under their belt. But enablers tend to misplace their trust to people perhaps too quickly. In fact, enablers often insist that others trust the enabled. And uh, sometimes what happens is, is that there's these serial offenders that are brought to the forefront from their enablers. And the problem is that if they aren't truly repentant, they're likely to repeat the harmful behavior. And so, uh, you know, we need to realize that forgiving a person is not the same as trusting a person. <laughs> and so we, we walk this out rightly. We can't misplace our trust. Now, that was 6 through 10. We went through that quickly. It sort of cleans up last week. But the question that we come to this week is, well, what's the answer? If we're not to enable our neighbor, but we're still to love our neighbor, how, how does all this work? Well, the answer I want to give you today, I've entitled by message, Telling Your Neighbor the Truth. Telling Your Neighbor the Truth. If you have your Bibles, find Ephesians 4. I'm going to read, what, three verses in Ephesians 4. And uh, as we go through this, um, we're going to unpack some things Paul said to the Ephesian church and just share a little bit. When we refuse to enable, we must now begin to speak the truth. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 14, this is what Paul writes. He says that we should, meaning the church, that we should no longer be children. 
It's great to be a child, but he wants you to grow up into adulthood. And he says, in order really to begin to grow up and no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Now he's talking about how there will be those in the church who will be tossed all over the place because someone has come up to you. Let me suggest a dysfunctional, enabled person would come up to you and begin to toss you about here and there, deceitfully plotting this thing. He says it is time to grow up from being hoodooed by this. And he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So he begins by saying speaking the truth is going to be a feature of how we grow up out of this sort of arrested development. And uh, I'm going to get my wife to teach. She's got some revelation on arrested development, which is really phenomenal. And uh, and that's really what's being spoken here. You're going to get out of this arrested development and you're going to grow up in Christ, but it's going to take speaking the truth, probably hearing the truth in love. Now leap over to verse 25. He tells them, therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Telling your neighbor the truth. Now, Paul is the one that's writing this letter here. He's writing it to a church in Ephesus. In fact, it's interesting, Ephesus got a lot of his attention because Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus. And so as Paul is writing Ephesians and then he's writing then later first and second Timothy, he's literally writing all of these things to this church at Ephesus. And so this church got a lot of attention. A lot of the writing in the New Testament, at least three whole books are designed to go straight to the church at Ephesus. And so the Ephesian church was obviously notable. We do know it was a large church. And this church was navigating a really perverse culture in Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to go through all the perversions. It was the normal perversion, really, of the Greek influence that was taking place there. Temple prostitution, uh, uh, just just grotesque uh, things, pedophilia, other things that were happening with regards to the culture that was acceptable. And the Ephesian church was doing this ministry in the midst of these perversions. They were in the midst of what we would call the epitome of relativism, where everybody was saying in the culture, now think about this, I know this, this should make our head spin, but they're having sex with kids, and they're saying that's cool. In other words, that's their truth. Now I know in our minds we're going, that's just gross. That's perversion. But yet in a culture that is as broken as the first century culture was in the Greek world, I mean, they'd have sex on the streets. There were curtains you just go behind and have sex with strangers. I mean, we can't, we can't hardly fathom these things. Of course, anymore, the trajectory is I wouldn't be surprised at anything in the next 20 years. But we would say to ourselves, that's, that's, that's crazy. But this is relativism. It's when you have an Ephesian culture that looks crazy to us but they're looking at you saying, this is our truth. This is okay. This is cool. And so the Ephesians were in the middle of this perversion. And to remain faithful to God, if they were going to do a ministry in the midst of this perversion, they were going to have to learn how to speak truth 
to a culture that thought it was already living in truth. Their truth. We've talked about this before. You've met people who said, that's your truth. This is my truth. And I'll say it again. One of you is wrong. Because there can't be two diametrically opposed opinions on something and both be true. Somebody's wrong. It can't be your truth and my truth. There is a truth or the truth, and that's what we have to find. And so the Ephesian church, were, they were learning what it meant to speak the truth to one another and to also speak the truth to this culture. And you can imagine how popular they must have been in Ephesus. They were about as popular as we are today in America, speaking the truth. Now let's define truth. I always like to define things. And uh, there's no set definition. I'm just going to read a couple things. Truth is basically what you know to be a certainty. Truth is basically what you know to be a certainty. I said there's no your truth and my truth because something would be uncertain in that. Truth by its very nature is objective. There's no such thing as subjective truth. Truth doesn't change day to day, week to week, year to year generation to generation it doesn't change if it was wrong uh one time being true then it's wrong today if it was right at one time being true it's right today now uh, before now i know there are traditions that have were supposedly established at truth and i'll get to this in just a moment and they change and maybe they need to change but it wasn't based in objective understanding i'll get there in just a second years ago i was a custodian at night to get through graduate school. I, uh, I, I went to school during the day and at night from three to 11, I cleaned up at this uh, grade school. And I remember oh, on a day that I went in at three, that that day they had had assemblies, the kids had had assemblies and they brought this, this young guy in and he was a storyteller. And so they had these assemblies and he would tell stories. He was a gifted storyteller. And so he did that all day long at these assemblies at school, and he had a lot of charisma, and he was a sharp-looking guy, and, and the school just loved him. And he was hanging around afterwards. Actually, he was in the gymnasium waiting for his check, and he was shooting some baskets. And I came in. I was dumping waste baskets out, you know, 3 o'clock when I got in. And uh, so we were talking about what he had done and, and how it went over really well with the kids. And we just started talking about Christianity. He was asking what I was doing, why I was there. And we got into the whole, you can imagine how that discussion went. And he made this statement, interestingly. He said to me, he said, you know, I, I don't buy into Christianity because I believe people are basically good. And there's really no need for a savior. Now, I, I was talking to this guy. Now, I understand this is probably 1980. Three, two, maybe 82, 83, somewhere in there. So, you know, this is 30 plus years ago, 35 years ago. It's a different time period in America because what I'm about ready to do would never fly, probably today. And, and it, was, it was not hostile. We were just visiting. There was no hostility. There was no animosity. But I just stood there and said, I can't leave this go unchallenged. And so without malice, I just, I just said, well, you know, I, I just think you're wrong. And he looked at me and he said, how can you say that? And he, just, and he mentioned a few notable acts of human beings that uh, were compassionate or benevolent. And, and I said, well, let me just be honest with you. I, I recognize that human beings can do a lot of wonderful things. But 
But let me just ask you this one question, and maybe this will settle it. Have you read the newspaper today? Because if you read the newspaper, 95% of what you will read in that newspaper has nothing to do with human beings being good. It has everything to do with human beings being innately selfish, lawbreakers, and being evil. And we bantered briefly for a while, and he said, well, you know, and he's, he's, he's dodging it off. I said, well, let me just ask you, have, did, have, you ever, have, you ever, have you ever been at a job and you took a pencil with you home? Well, yeah. And I said, well, you stole. He goes, well, that's not really stealing. Well, you see here, I said, here's your problem, is you're now relativistic. You defined what you did as not stealing. So where it, when, does, when, does it, when does it constitute stealing? Does it constitute stealing when you take a whole pack of pencils home? Or maybe it constitutes stealing when you take the whole file cabinet with all the supplies home. Or does it constitute stealing when you take $100 from your business home? Or if that's not stealing, is it $1,000? Tell me where stealing starts and stops. And all of a sudden, he realized he was caught. He was a relativist. The purpose of my telling that story is not that we walk around tweaking everybody. He was in there. He started the conversation. I figured if you open the can, I'll walk through. But I want to simply give a a, a relevant realization that there are going to be moments that God will ask us to speak truth to our neighbors. Why? It's because for the Christian, truth is derived objectively. And that objective truth is derived from our Bibles. We look at the Bible and we begin to see what God says is true. In fact, the Bible says, let, let God be true and every man a liar. And he is. Now, why are the scriptures, I, I'm going to give you this real quick. Why are the scriptures good for us to receive truth from? Number one is this. It has a track record. The Bible is a book that has a track record. People who have endeavored to live according to the precepts of Scripture can be seen and evaluated. Now, we're not all perfect people. We don't apply everything perfectly. There's oftentimes we're dodging things. But the fact of the matter is, scripturally, there is a track record of walking according to the Scripture. You can begin to see whether or not it works. Just a track record. Number two, it has longevity under adversity do you know how many people through the years thousands of years that have tried to undermine the scripture and the bible to this day is still the best-selling book in the world in fact the new york times bestseller list will no longer put the bible on their list because it would always be number one so they don't even put it on there anymore it's longevity under adversity people have tried to undermine it tried to despise it tried to get rid of it and the bible still hangs around why is that it's because it's true it's it works it's true and then the third reason which i think is as powerful as any other is it's revelation we believe that the scriptures have a supernatural dimension associated with them And that the Bible is literally God's thoughts and will concerning this life. Our truth is objective because it's rooted in an unveiling of God's heart. Murder is wrong. Can I hear an amen? Do you know why murder is wrong? It's not simply wrong because it takes a person's life. It's wrong because God said it's wrong. There are sociologists you know 
this day in universities, some of whom your kids may one day attend, that will tell you that there are tribes, and it's true that what they'll say is true, there are tribes in South America or in Africa who routinely murder other tribes, even each other, but the sociologists consider them ethically sound because that is their culture. They would say in that culture, murder is right because that is what their culture allows for. Murder for them is truth. Now, why do we reject that? Because our culture has decided here in America that you can't murder. Well, that's not true because we murder millions of unborn babies every year. So we know that's not true. Why do we consider murder wrong? Murder is wrong because it is objectively stated in God's word, thou shalt not murder. Are you following me? It's revealed. Ephesus was a highly sexualized and perverted culture. It's not all that unlike what ours is becoming. Just because an Ephesian allows promiscuity and perversion does not mean God accommodates himself to the culture. See, we think God is somehow accommodating himself to America. That's not true. God yields for no man. Objective truth is that sexuality and gender identity is rooted in what God has said. He has revealed his ways in these areas. Now, do people come along confused? They don't know what to do. Yes, sin breaks us. We're broken people. We were all came in broken. When you were 16, if you're a guy and you were 16 and all of a sudden, you know, puberty kicks in fast. And I mean, you're just you're 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 just you're broken because you're looking at females and you've got these feelings and you don't know what to do with these feelings. And yet the Bible says that that you're not supposed to have intimate relationship with a female until you reach the point of covenant or marriage. But yet these feelings are happening. Why are these feelings happening? It's because of the the, the pressures of of the, well, number one, of the natural pressures of growing up and aging. And, And it was always God's intention, I believe, that we were probably to find relationship. This is just my view. You don't have to take it as gospel. But we were probably supposed to find relationship far earlier than we do. People are waiting to get married so long that they don't understand why they can't have sex for 10, 20 years before they get married. It's because the Bible says that we were to enjoy the wife of our youth, which sort of leads me to believe, of course, when people are only living short periods of time, you get married in your later teens, let's say, just for the sake of argument, uh, you know, you may only live another 30 years or 40 years. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're broken and and these pressures come and and there's pressure and this feeling to act on it. And why can't we act on it? Because this is how I feel. And certainly God knows how I feel. Sir, God understands you have feelings, but your feelings are subject to his lordship. And because it's subject to his lordship, those feelings yield to God. God doesn't yield to your feelings. Truth is what God has said, not just what we feel. Now, the question comes up, why is it difficult to speak truth? This is hard. And I'm going to give you just a couple things. Number one is this, confronting is difficult. Confronting is just difficult. Now, the word confront does not automatically mean aggression or anger. Confrontation can be as simple as what happened with that young man in that gymnasium. It's a conversation. Just a conversation. Nobody was mean. Nobody was mad. Nobody was yelling. 
But the idea he threw out didn't go unchallenged. There was a confrontation. We think confrontation has to look like those folks from Westboro Baptist. You know, they're picketing funerals. And, you know, it's just, it's unproductive. And a lot of what they're doing isn't even on target. And it's just, confrontation is not being a jerk. Okay? So, so but I understand confronting is difficult. To, 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 to keep from being a jerk doesn't mean you keep from confronting. It means you just don't be a jerk, but you still learn to confront and to challenge. I think there's a way that it can be due, but that is difficult. Number two is it's difficult because we feel inadequate. We feel inadequate. I still feel inadequate when I'm dropped in situations where I'm asked to articulate or represent God's position on objective truth. I'll never forget. I was dropped. I was dropped in a liberal seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. And the guy, I no, I was, I was sitting next to a lady who was uh, a well-educated, uh, reformed uh, rabbi, reformed Jew, uh, uh, Jewish rabbi, which was this lady. Then next to her was a Harvard-trained Ph.D. Um, seminary president. And we were going to have a conversation about um, sexual identity and um, Christian conscience, conscience in the marketplace. And they just dropped me in there. And I'm here to tell you, I felt inadequate. I mean, I, you know, they, they, were, they, they came. Uh, it, was, it was hosted by the Indianapolis Star the newspaper, and I just, I felt inadequate. And there are times we just feel inadequate to be the one that's in a moment that we have to share what we believe is truth in a appropriate, in an appropriate, trying to do it in a winsome type of way. And here's the deal. You may feel inadequate, but, but in some ways that's not bad because your adequacy isn't in yourself. Your adequacy is in him. And at that moment, you'd be amazed at the things that God, through his spirit, can drop into you, that you can speak, that are from another world. But you got to be in that moment. You have to be willing to step in. And despite your inadequacy, he will make up for it. The Holy Spirit will help you. And then the third reason we don't like is because we just don't know how. We don't know how, how, how in the world can I address a culture that's just crazy, your pastor has created the Bonhoeffer Institute. Anybody here heard Bonhoeffer Institute? I mean, Bonhoeffer Institute is a training mechanism that I've created that God is opening some doors for me to go and train pastors and Christian leaders in how you begin to talk to a culture. And it's, it's like a think tank. It's, it's, it's fusion, fusing revival and reformation together so that we can go be truly salt and light in a culture like Paul was or Timothy was. They went into a culture. Paul had the ability to go to the Arapagus. And whether he, you think he did it right or not, he was still at the Arapagus debating the philosophers of Greece, talking to them about this unseen God. But we don't know how. Part of the reason is we've not got a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit where there's this fresh fire inside of us. And secondly, we've just not been trained. We're, we're so busy working at just our own personal level that we've never, we've never considered that God might want to expand us and work in a far greater level with others around us. We just don't know how. So I'm going to give you some suggestions here as we just kind of wrap up, just three quick suggestions in speaking the truth. How 
can I begin? Where do I begin? What can I begin to do, Pastor, in order to, to speak the truth? Maybe I have a friend. Maybe I have a family member. Maybe I have a coworker. Maybe I have a neighbor. Maybe I just, you know, maybe there's nobody right now, but I got a feeling I'm going to be dropped in the middle of something. And what in the world? How in the world? What can I do? I'm going to give you just three easy, quick things. It's where you can start. And maybe if we can get Bonhoeffer here to the low country, uh, you might want to stick your head in and hear what we're talking about there, and you can get some more training and enlargement. But I'm just going to give you three things, three suggestions in speaking truth. Number one is this. Do you truly want the best for them? Do you truly want the best for them? I think before you even interact with somebody, you've got to examine your motives. Before we interact with a culture, we've got to examine our motives. We speak the truth because we believe that broken, dysfunctional, selfish humanity will fall into destruction if they don't hear the truth of the gospel, if they don't hear the principles of God's word. This is what we should believe. We believe people, if they don't know Jesus, they will go to hell. That's just, that's biblical. That they need the gospel. They need to hear precept out of the scripture that will enable them to live what Jesus said, a life that's abundant. If it were up to me, I would let the hostility of most of the world to the gospel endure its own pain. You understand that if people are hell-bent on driving their lives off a cliff, sometimes you just feel like, well, then drive off. That's how you feel sometimes. But if the Spirit of God is in you, there's a compassion and an urgency to share with people so they don't destroy themselves. Now hear me, most people who are driving like a madman ready to go off a cliff and you're sitting there waving your arms going, hey, slow down for a minute so I can talk to you about this because there's a cliff coming up here that I really don't want you to go over. They're going to look at you and say, quit judging my driving. Who are you to talk about my driving? I'll drive wherever I blessed well want to drive. In fact, Jesus is just fine with my driving. It's the air we live in. Now, I don't want them to go off a cliff. Do you? Of course not. We, we, we understand. We, we have understanding. We don't want people to destroy their lives. I know that God's word tells me that violating his principles, the Bible says it itself, the wages of sin are what? Death that ultimately sin will destroy and kill. So our motive has to be to help people avoid as much pain as possible in this broken, fallen world. Will they get it? No, because their eyes are blinded. But that does not alleviate the fact that we need to see if God is breaking through their hearts and using us to speak the truth. But our motive has to be that we really want the best for them. Number two, you got to examine yourself first. I put specs v. logs. You know what I'm talking about there? Jesus told us to remove our own logs before we pick others' specs. Now, the purpose of that command was not to keep us from speaking truth. You know, there are some that think because no one is perfect, therefore no one has the ability to share the truth. That's what they believe. Well, nobody's perfect, so why should you get to say anything to me? But what Jesus was saying, I believe, was that you recognize your own relativisms and your own hypocrisies before you dip into other, other people's hypocrisies. You see, because there's nothing worse than getting a lecture from an inconsistent Christian. There's nothing worse 
than getting lectured from a hypocrite. Now, again, I understand there are probably areas we don't see, blind spots, but here's the deal. I think we have to first examine ourselves and say to the Lord, Lord, if there are blind spots in my life, then I want to know about them. If there are blind spots that I really cannot see, I really want to live all that I can be for you. So, Lord, help me. Help me receive, even from others. Help me hear that out if there are blind spots. But just... But just the fact that I may have some doesn't doesn't disqualify me from being a set of eyes for another person. Paul rebuked the Corinthians when he told them to examine yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. I don't know how many of us ever do that. If we ever stop and say say to ourselves, am I really a Christian? Have I really received Jesus? I know there are people, and in in, I get this, people will say, well, no, you're just, you're heaping your, on yourself doubt. Listen, I, I, I get there's a confidence in the Lord, but there has to come a moment when we're living in this egregious culture we're living in that we, if, if we got to ask ourselves, really, am I a Christian? Have I really received Jesus as Lord of all my life? Am I bearing fruit in this regard? Do I have some things that are, that are coming from me that indicate that Jesus is really Lord in my life? Is this a genuine thing that is taking on inside of me? And I think that if you can legitimately begin to say yes to some of those things, then it puts you in a position to be able to look at someone else and say, listen, I am not coming to you as a perfect person, but I am coming to you as another set of eyes, and I'm asking you to consider I'm asking you to consider this because I think ultimately it will destroy you. And then the third thing, and we'll just leave it at this, we have to examine the word. Don't bring your own opinion. This is the objective truth. The objective truth is not your opinion. The objective truth is the word. Speaking the truth means bringing God's view, not your opinion. So the question is, what are you doing to learn God's word? Have you positioned yourself to be a self-learner? Have you positioned yourself to hear God's word? Have you positioned yourself to be taught God's word? Examine the word. Do you know the word? Do you know how to share the word? Listen, if, you're, if you don't, you, you may say to yourself, well, I, I, I could use a lot more. Listen, just start where you are and just say, I'm going to begin to read it, to understand it, to know it, to study it, and then I'm going to have it in me so when the moment comes, I'll be able to share in an appropriate way the truth of what God says on these matters. Here's what I want to do. I want us to just pray before we close today. I just want to pray that you and I would have courage, courage to share truth. Again, not that you'd be a jerk, not that you'd be mean, not that you'd be harsh. You're not, you're not looking to tee up on somebody. But you're waiting for an opportunity where you might hear an open door where the Lord, his spirit, might speak to you and say, there, slip some of my truth in there. You'll speak some truth. I can use it as a seed in them and maybe change their life. So I want to pray for you in that regard. I hope you'll let me and that you'll be open to receive that. So let's stand, shall we?